We are going to be going to Acts chapter 1. So if you're following along in your Bibles, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Before we go to Acts chapter 1, I was going to read this before taking the juice. But, you know, we, we take communion monthly here. And as we take communion, sometimes we think, why does this stuff, you know, really matter? What's, what's the big deal about some of this stuff? And, you know, that's why we try to always look at God's word so we can get instruction. And in and, and, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 16, the apostle Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He goes on in chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Because Jesus lives, because Jesus rose again, because Jesus went to the cross, we have confidence, we have hope that we will live. We have life now, real life now with Jesus in life eternal because Jesus went to the cross for us. And that's what we remember as we take communion. I heard a story, which I'll share as we begin today. There was this man, he was a Southern Baptist man. His name was Bill. He loved to sneak away to the horse tracks. And one day after losing almost all of his money, he noticed this priest stepped out into the tracks and blessed this horse. And he watched very curiously. And sure enough, that horse won first place the next race. This man watched after losing all his money, watched this priest, blessed the horse, and the horse won first place. The priest blessed another horse. And again, he won. And so Bill had been losing all his money, so Bill ran back to the ATM machine, got all his money out, and the next time, the priest not only touched the horse's forehead, but he touched his eyes, his ears, and the rest of his face. And Bill was so confident, he bet all of his money on that horse. But in the middle of that race, that horse fell down dead. He could not believe it. Bill rushed over to the priest. The priest, he says to the priest, what in the world happened? The priest said, this is the problem with you Protestants. You don't know the difference between a blessing and last rites. (laughs) That plot time, he was giving last rites to the horse. Well, we do have eternal hope. We have eternal hope as Christians, and I'm going to introduce to you today the book of Acts, and we're going to walk slowly, section by section, through the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we can call it the Acts of the Apostles, because we see the Apostles, the early church, but oftentimes it's called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit set a fire in the, in, in the people in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, really, and the Holy Spirit was at work in the church, and how do we start a fire? I don't know about you, but I love fire. When I was growing up, we had a fireplace. It was a wood-burning fireplace. And I love that fireplace. I love sitting and listening to the crackling of the wood and watching the fire. One January gave us around 12 inches of snow. 
And it was right at the end of winter break. It was a kid's dream. I absolutely loved it. Right at the end of winter break, got 12 inches of snow, got school canceled. And then the weekend came and we got another 12 inches of snow. So we had like 24 inches of snow on the ground. Well, during the night when the second snowstorm came, my mom was at a euchre party at her parents' house, and my dad really didn't like to play euchre, so he stayed home with us. And he put the kitchen table right in front of the fireplace. The fire's going. We put more logs in the fire, and we played Monopoly like all night, you know, in front of the fireplace. It was peaceful. It was relaxing, and it was a wonderful evening playing Monopoly. How many of you like bonfires? Any of you like bonfires, campfires, fire? I read this. It comes from Pastor Rick Sams, a mentor and friend of mine, retired evangelical friends pastor, and he titled this, Snuffing or Starting the Fire. He wrote, I was strangely drawn to my old Boy Scout handbook the other day, specifically the section on fire building. He says, most boys love to mess with fire. The scouts believe the key is teaching them how to do it safely. Interestingly, He writes, I found far more techniques for putting out fires than starting them. For example, water, sand, stop, drop, roll, blanket, chemicals, dirt, soda pop, baking soda, shovel, and even your hands for putting out the fire. He writes, this may be a metaphor of life. It's easier to snuff the fire, which is a power of God in your life, than start it. At any given moment, we are either fanning that flame or we are actively putting out, putting it out. There's no in-between. There's no autopilot or maintenance mode. We are either fanning the flame, the power, the gift of God, the fire of the Holy Spirit in our life, or we're putting it out. The twin verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 confirm this. They write, fan into flame the gift of God in you. And do not put out the Holy Spirit's fire. So, this is still Rick Sam's. How do we fan the flame of the Holy Spirit Spirit in our lives? We often do that in a surprising way. One of the best ways is by humbling ourselves, confessing we are weak, and he is strong. We are doing this when we pray. God is very close to those who admit they are helpless, broken, and desperate. So Pastor Rick is saying that when we depend upon the Holy Spirit, God is strong and it starts a fire in our hearts. We are going to see that theme in our new sermon series on the book of Acts. We're going to see that theme. The Holy Spirit is extremely active in the book of Acts. I want to ask you, is the Holy Spirit really active in your life? Are you staying in tune with the Holy Spirit? I noticed a theme in Bill's message last week. He repeatedly was saying, plug in, you know, plug in, plug in to the Lord, plug in, plug in in your relationship with the Lord. I was talking with a relative recently and We were concerned because they haven't been active in a church in 20-some years at least. They're not active in daily devotions, not active in the scriptures. I know that. They've shared it with me. We were concerned about their spiritual state, and we asked them, and they said, I think I'm good. 
thought, why do you think you're good? They said, well, I feel good. Well, if that's the standard, everybody's good, right? I mean, that's Oprah spirituality. Oprah just won an award about three weeks ago. I didn't know if you know that. You probably know. I'm sure you all stay in tune with what's going on with Oprah. Well, Oprah changed the American view, the American people's view of spirituality, that we can just think if we feel like we're good, we're good. Oprah is not the standard. The way we feel is not the standard. It's God's word is the standard, and God's word teaches us that God wants a relationship with us. So much that he died in the cross for our sins, and he rose again. But if we simply think, I said a prayer one day at VBS, I'm okay for life, and you're not in relationship with him, I wouldn't bet your eternal life on that. And I wouldn't bet your life right now on that either. God wants to give you a relationship with Jesus. Right before COVID, I call it BC. BC, before COVID. I preached a sermon series on knowing Jesus in 2020. The second, first message or so, I talked about making sure you are saved. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself and make sure you are saved. One thing we all need to ask ourselves, where do we stand with the Lord? And don't go based off your feelings. Go based off the word of God. Are we drawn? Are we compelled to spend time with him? If it doesn't bother us when we're absent from the bride of Christ, if it doesn't bother us that we're not in relationship with him in prayer and in scripture and in silence and solitude and fasting and other spiritual disciplines, I'd be concerned. We are not saved by going to church. You are not saved by having your daily devotions. You are not saved by fasting. You're not saved by having silence and solitude. But they certainly do reveal the posture of your heart. They do reveal your allegiances. As my Sunday school class knows, Matthew 13, the parable of the seed and the sower has been on my heart heavy lately. Seed is the word of God. You can read it later on. I encourage us all. I pray it too. Pray that that seed continues to grow within us. If the seed's not growing, and you, maybe it's not you, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your grandchildren, which means you need to pray about for them with this, and you don't care, being absent from church, being absent from the word of God, being, not having a relationship with him, you could be the seed along the path. You can look it up later. It's Matthew 13. It could be the seed that the gospel took a short, a small root in your life and the worries of this life or the riches of this life or the abundance of this life and all the things of this life pulled it away. We're never promised tomorrow. And if we don't care to have a relationship with Jesus now, don't count on a relationship with Jesus for all eternity. 
You could be just a cultural Christian. You could be just in it for what Jesus offers to you or some other thing. I'd be glad to talk to you more about those. As we get into the book of Acts, we see these disciples, this group that Jesus chose, this unlikely group that Jesus chose. They were not on the, you know, the 11 most wanted for CEOs list. We see this group that Jesus chose connect with the power of the Holy Spirit within them in Acts chapter two. And they were so compelled and so convicted to spread the gospel that it literally, they literally, through the power of the Holy Spirit within them, turn the world upside down. I mean, in the beginning of Acts chapter one, there Jesus goes, he ascends to heaven. He says, wait, don't do anything till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They're hiding in an upper room in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and everything changes. Peter preaches, 5,000 are saved. More saved in the next chapter. In the next chapter, persecution comes. They spread out and they take the gospel with them. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. It's pretty far distance back then because they were plugged into the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 1, 1 to 5 with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. He is Jesus, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I wanna give you some background uh, to the book of Acts just for a moment, and then we'll move on to some applications. Acts is Luke's second volume. So who wrote Acts? Luke, right? It's a trick question. I just said, Acts is Luke's second volume. So Luke wrote Acts. It it is well-documented in church history that Luke wrote Acts. It seems to be very clear and unchallenged that Luke is the author. The church father Irenaeus offers an early witness to Luke, Paul's traveling companion and author of these two volumes. And this suggestion is nowhere seriously challenged among early church fathers. Also, the church father Tertullian refers to the author once as Luke the lawyer. Now, why does this matter? You know, they wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we still can track down in church history and find um, documentation and sources in the first hundred or so years of the church from these church fathers. We call them church fathers because they were early church leaders, strong pastoral leaders that God used to build up the church. And if, you know, I was talking to another relative over Christmas and and he was questioning scripture and I said, you know, if God wasn't in it, it would have fallen apart. 
If God wasn't in it, the early church would have fallen apart. There were so many challenges to Christianity. Persecution, you have Nero, Caesar Nero using Christians to light up the streets of Rome. We have Christians being filleted, literally filleted. We have Christians being put in the gladiatorial games. You know, we, we, there's so much persecution. And then if that wasn't enough, you also have other threats, the Gnostics, uh, these heresies that would develop trying to take over. But the Holy Spirit was in it and the church grew. And we have documented sources from church fathers writing about these early writers of the epistles. And one of them is Irenaeus and Tertullian, another writing about Luke. The autobiographical nature of Acts using we shows that the writer of Acts and Luke travel with Paul. Later on, when Paul's traveling all the known world with the gospel, the writer of Acts, being probably Luke, uses we. And you can see it change. At some point, he's saying, Paul went here, Paul went there. And then he says, we. So he is with the apostle Paul, a traveling companion, as Paul goes around sharing the gospel. Uh, John MacArthur writes, the writings of the early church fathers, such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome affirm Luke's authorship, and so does something called the Moratorian Canon, which was in AD 170. By the way, the Moratorian Canon is a pretty big deal. It's pretty cool. A hundred years after the Gospels are pretty much written, you have this canon, and canon here does not mean like a boom canon, like Civil War. Canon means an authoritative list you know, authoritative list, and you have this moratorium authoritative list of the New Testament. It's most all the New Testament, and it lists Luke as well. I want to talk a moment about Luke's gospel. Most of you probably remember Luke's gospel. Luke is used by Linus and Charlie Brown and the Peanuts, you know, their Christmas story is quoted, you know, and, and, and we talk about Luke's gospel a lot with the Christmas season. You know, we see the angels in the fields and that's in Luke's gospel. We see John the baptizer's birth and that's in Luke's gospel. We see in Luke's gospel that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. We see it was Luke who told us that Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth before before Jesus is born. It was Luke who told us Jesus' birth from Mary's perspective. After Jesus' birth, Luke records the account of Jesus being left at the temple when he was 12 years old. Luke gives a lot of details about Jesus' life, and he gives the only detail about Jesus' childhood. So now Luke is beginning his second volume. He wrote about Jesus' life. He wrote about Jesus' death. He wrote about Jesus' resurrection. And now he's writing as a, in, in, a, in a second volume. And as we look at Acts, we can see many passages in which Luke uses the, the pronoun we, as I already mentioned, like Acts 16.10 is a for instance about that. So Luke's a traveling companion. And Luke is writing the second volume, and he's writing it on scrolls. They did not have books yet. What we would call codex, codex, codex or codices, those are, you know, woven together books. They didn't have the books yet. They had scrolls. And they used, they used these. Matthew, Luke, and Acts were each close to the maximum length for scrolls, which was between 32 and 35 feet. Can you imagine unrolling something you're reading 32 to 35 feet long? I mean, just imagine that. And like, if we're up here and I'm speaking and I'm unrolling and I would have to call Art up here and Georgie in here, help me, you know, as we unroll this, they didn't have that yet. So there was a limitation to how much they could fit on a scroll. And Luke and Acts and Matthew, they stretched that length. 
There is debate about when Acts was written. I favor the belief that Acts was written in AD 62. That's about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. I believe that because this book does not record. The book of Acts does not record the major persecutions that would have occurred in 64 AD and thereafter. And you would think if it was written later, it would have recorded those persecutions. So let's look at this text. Let's look at Acts 1, 1 to 5 a little bit more and then make some applications. Look again at verse 1. Luke reminds the reader what he had written in his first work. He's giving a reminder. He's written this first work, and now he's going to remind them. Any of us who watch, you know, sequels or TV shows that have sequels, we, we know you do that, you know, on the last episode. That's what Luke is doing. There was a show that Meg and I got hooked on about 11 years ago called 24. The show 24. Jack Bauer, this special service agent, is the main character in 24. And each episode was one hour, and each season was one full day. In every episode, they would review what happened in the previous episode. That's what Luke is doing. You know, he's reviewing a little bit of the previous work, the gospel according to Luke. Luke is writing to Theophilus. Theophilus was likely someone paying Luke to research and write about Jesus and the early church. Back then, they would have these patron-client relationships. And Theophilus was likely paying Luke to do the research and to write about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, the first work, and now about the early church and the second work. It is also possible, this is a cool idea, that Theophilus was not a man, but a code name. It's possible that Theophilus could be a code name for any believer. It's possible because of the persecution going on, Luke was not gonna give a specific name, so it's kind of a code name. The theme of the first five verses is that Jesus told the disciples to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus says that John baptized with water, but he will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. It's just a reminder are we living the Christian life on our, in our own life or in the strength of the Lord? We're gonna talk a lot about that as we go through Acts. I'm gonna give you some themes, some themes. In Acts, believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ among, among both Jews and Gentiles. And in doing this, they establish a church. In addition to this, Acts explains how Christianity although it is new, is in reality the one true religion rooted in God's promises from the beginning of time. In the ancient world, it was important that a religion be shown to have stood the test of time. Thus, Luke presents the church as the fulfillment and extension of God's promises. Luke is presenting the church, the bride of Christ, as the fulfillment and the extension of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament. In other words, the first century was not the beginning of Christianity. Christianity goes all the way back to Judaism. Rome was suspicious of any new religion. Rome was suspicious and non-accepting of new religions. So we see in the book of Acts and we see in the epistles of Paul especially, them showing, no, 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 Christianity is not a new religion. Christianity continues right on through Judaism, and Judaism predates Rome. 
In Acts, we see many summaries. Luke will summarize how the early church shared everything. In Acts, we have many speeches and sermons. In Acts, we have many travel narratives. We have Paul's missionary journeys. And Luke gives detail to where Paul went. The first half of Acts is mainly about Peter. And the second half is about Paul taking the gospel to the non-Jewish people. Christianity crosses cultures. And it's not tied to a country. Christianity is tied to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Heard about a family that fled the country. They were angry about America losing our Christian values. A certain family, they were so agitated with how America is becoming anti-Christ that they got on their own boat and they planned to go to an island in the Pacific. But their boat was caught in a storm and they were eventually rescued. They were sent to another country and then the American embassy took care of them. The story is ironic because they were fleeing America because of America's, you know, problems, but America had to bring them back. But in Acts, we see that Christianity is not tied to a country or a culture. Christianity does not belong to a certain country. Christianity is for all people. In the book of Acts, we see constant power through prayer and through miracles. I love it. Just next week's sermon or the week after, we're going to see they're praying as they get Matthias, the next disciple. In Acts 13, they're praying and fasting. And the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart Paul Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. It's constant power through prayer, through dedication to the Lord, and through dedication to the Word. Their prayers are filled with the Scriptures too. And as mentioned, in Acts we see the acts of the Holy Spirit. They did not do this on their own. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit, taking and spreading the gospel through the apostles and through the early Christians. It's not about them. It's not about us, really. It's about the Holy Spirit using us as instruments for God. We always want it to be about us. I was talking to a relative, older gentleman who I greatly respect, but he's not a Christian. We're talking about the faith over the holidays. And he said, it can't be just believing in Jesus. That's just too easy. It's easy for us. Hard for Jesus. He went to the cross for us and rose again. Don't you realize, though, the point is, we always want to be able to contribute to it. We have trouble with a free gift. It's God freely giving us salvation. And then... We are instruments of the Holy Spirit as he works in us and with us to take the gospel to our friends and family and relatives, to serve others in the name of Jesus. The first audience was learning about what God did in the church and how the gospel got to them. You may know little about Acts and the early church, or you may, or you may know a lot, but I hope that you learned a little bit of something today. I also hope that we are all encouraged by the power of prayer, the power of the Holy Spirit, the miracles that God accomplishes. And I hope as we walk through the book of Acts that we are also encouraged to build an Acts church. There's a ministry called Acts 29. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Acts 29 is about planting churches. 
Because in the book of Acts, they're spreading the gospel all around. They just, they're persecuted. They're commanded not to share the gospel. And they say, I can't. I got to obey God, not man. I have to preach the gospel. I just have to. I'm just compelled to share the gospel. When Jesus enters our life, he changes us. It's like a magnet, right? I mean, we have a compulsion to the word of God. We have a compulsion to the bride of Christ at church. We have a compulsion to, to, to meet with the Lord and to, and to spread the Lord's message to other people. He changes us. Are we changed? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our life? I read this. Actually, one of you shared it with me, and so I'm going to bring up a shoebox. We're going to call it an air guitar, though. It's not a shoebox. It's not an air guitar either. I don't know. It's a fake guitar. It's a make. I know the air guitar is like, you know, this isn't an air guitar. This is a fake guitar made of rubber bands. And, and I saw this, and I thought it was really neat. It came through Keys for Kids, which any of you can get online or, or some other way. You know, when you put rubber bands on these, you know, shoebox, which I need back because it has my next pair of running shoes in it, and I'm addicted to running. Um, some of the rubber bands, right, might fit tightly, right? Some fit easily. Others fit tightly. Others are tight, and they have to be stretched out thin in order to fit over the shoebox, right? They have to be stretched, and if you, if you keep pulling it, it might, even, it might even break to get around the cardboard. Sometimes, this didn't happen with me, but if you go home and you get a shoebox and you find a bunch of rubber bands, uh, some, and you're putting rubber bands on a shoebox, some might even snap, Right? But here's the point. When you strum a make-believe guitar like this, the rubber bands that fit super tight make different musical sounds than the ones that were looser, right? I mean, if there's a looser one, it's going to make a different musical sound than the one that's super tight. And the point here is life is like that too. When bad things happen, we are stretched like those small rubber bands. We may be hurting, but we can still make music during the hard times. During the hard times of our lives, we can still make music because Jesus is with us. And how is he with us? Through the Holy Spirit. In a few weeks, we're going to get into Acts chapter 2. It's called Pentecost. It's called the birthday of the church. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church. Jesus is with us. So whether we are tight, you know, like a tight rubber band about to break, or whether we're more loose, this one's a little more loose. The music might be different, but the same Holy Spirit is with us, and he's guiding us, and he's protecting us, and he's watching over us, and he's using us. Jesus understands what we're going through because he suffered too, and he's our great high priest. And in the book of Acts, we see how the Holy Spirit worked in the church. Now, here's your homework. Read the book of Acts. That's one. Another one, focus on the Holy Spirit. Go home. Read Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And then go on and read John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 especially John chapters 14 and 15 and 16. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And then borrow from me or get your copy. You could even get it as an audiobook. Francis Chan's book, Forgotten God. Francis Chan's book, Forgotten God. It's all about the Holy Spirit. We forget about the Holy Spirit. We forget. We live the Christian life like we're alone. We're not alone. 
God is with us. It's what Emmanuel's about. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord God, that you would bless and guide and teach and instruct us this week. And may we all remember, though I made it a little bit more academic, talking about the academic side of Scripture and who wrote the book of Acts and the themes of Acts and stuff, but may we all be just convicted. The Holy Spirit is with us. We have fullness of life because you are with us. The whole book of Acts the, the, the beginning in, in Jerusalem and ending in Rome with the gospel spreading to tens of thousands and probably hundreds of, thre- hundreds of thousands of people in that short time happened because of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, I pray that we all lean in on you this week. We need your help. And I pray, Lord, you would remind us, you would remind us that we need you every hour Strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.